You're listening to the Revelation Podcast brought to you by Open Bible Baptist Church. We're so glad you've chosen to listen today. To learn more about Open Bible Baptist Church or to hear more messages, visit openbible.ca. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky talks about the temple that will be built and about the two witnesses the world will hate. And now, here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. Tonight I'm going to be looking at the temple and the two witnesses as a part of the second woe. As you recall that the angel had come when the trumpets had sounded and uh, he said there are three woes and he said woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the three woes that are to come. And so this is a part of the second woe. So as we see them unfolding, we see them identified in the uh, chapters before us. But tonight I want to talk about the temple. I think it's important for us to understand it. Uh, We have made reference to the temple before, and tonight again we want to give special attention to that. We're also going to be talking about the two witnesses, so hopefully that this chapter, chapter 11, will be a blessing to you. We're going to read it together, please. So if you'd like to lift your voice together with me, We'll begin reading at verse number 1 down to verse 14. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Let's read the scripture in unison. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall finish their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of this great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, 
And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Interestingly, uh, we heard a report last night on Fox News, and some of the people there were talking about a seven-year agreement that uh, was being put in place in the Middle East. Uh, why they would choose the number seven is just just unimaginable, except that one day there will be a seven-year agreement. Whether this is it or not, we cannot tell for sure. It's possible that it is, and that someone will come along and verify and approve of that agreement. Uh, that would be the Antichrist who will do that. But it's very interesting that this kind of talk is happening in the secular world. And they're not reading their Bible to discover Daniel 9.27. They're talking about something that is guiding them into this kind of a situation. So I just want us to realize that the, the sounds in the sky and the sounds in the air, the sounds among people, lead us to believe that we are so close to the time when the church will be taken out of here and uh, the events of the tribulation will unfold. So what I want us to begin with this evening is I want us to look at more in detail to the temple built at the uh, beginning of the tribulation period. And I do not think that necessarily it'll be the first thing on the agenda. There are going to be a number of things such as the Russian war against Israel the attack with the various nations and uh, that will come down upon Israel and God will wipe them out. There's going to be the sealing of the 144,000 who are going to begin their evangelistic campaign. And somewheres in that whole situation, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Uh, the Dome of the Rock, that's the Muslim temple, in right in the very location where Abraham sacrificed or was about to sacrifice Isaac, became a sacred spot in Israel, and the temple had been built there, the first temple, the second temple had been built there, and uh, then, uh, of course, later, uh, the Dome of the Rock took the place, the temple had been destroyed 70 AD, and around six or 700, the Dome of the Rock was put up, so it is sitting on the location where the old temple was. That has to go. It's got to be removed before the temple can be rebuilt. It's unimaginable as to how that could happen. It's, it's just not, no human reasoning will tell you how it's going to happen. So what a lot of would-be Bible prophecy people have said was that there is good reason to believe that the temple could be built alongside of the Dome of the Rock so that you would have the Dome of the Rock over here, and then you would have the temple, so they'd be sharing the Holy Mount between the Muslims and the uh, people of Israel. And uh, I, I have never tapped into that, uh, but that is something that people are trying to reason out. And I just want you to know that reason is not going to establish the facts of the book of the Revelation. What you will see in the book of the Revelation is what you see, so you understand it, and there's no place for a dual temple up there on the rock, on, on that temple mount. So it's possible that a missile from the attack from the Russians and the other nations will come down, might remove that dome of the rock by, by accident. They wouldn't do it on purpose. 
because it's largely Muslim that'll come and do the fighting. And so uh, it's possible that that's the way it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think he knows for sure. Don't think anybody knows for sure. But we do know this by some very unique intervention of God, that dome of the rock will be cleared so that the temple can be built in that spot. Uh, I was asking Jimmy DeYoung, I said, is there, is there any possibility at all that the temple could be built alongside of the dome of rock? Any possibility that that sort of thing could happen? He said, not a chance in the world. He said, it just, it doesn't, it cannot. He said, the temple foundations, everything are right there, and the Dome of the Rock's got to go before the temple can go up. So God will have a way of doing it. Uh, whether it's going to be a blast, bomb, earthquake. What about sinkholes? Uh, have you seen them? I mean, God can do anything to make it happen. So what I want us to realize is, first of all, that that temple is going to be built. Are you at Revelation chapter 11, verse 1? We read this verse, but now that we've said all these things, let me just read verse 1 again. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. So I want you to stop right there. I think it's important for us to just, to, just realize what is happening here. So we're in the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 11. This is not ancient history. This is not something that's happening right now. This is something that will happen following some events of the rapture of the church. So the church will be gone, but the angel comes and gives the instruction to John and says, go and measure the temple of God. Well, there is no temple of God anywhere today. There's a very large synagogue in Jerusalem, and some teachers have even suggested that that synagogue might serve as the temple. And I just want you to realize that this is just unfounded information. This is information that's, I call it thumbnail theology, because there isn't any real sound biblical understanding in a lot of these sensational prophecy people. So it's important to always, if you listen to prophecy, make sure you listen to someone that can unfold the scriptures so that what is said ties in and it's revealed to us. We don't want to say more than what's revealed because that's only sensationalism. What we want to do is say what is revealed and that which is revealed to us we can know. So when verse number one says that first of all, I want you to go and I want you to measure the temple of God, that assumes that the temple has been built. So since it is not there now, it must be somewhere else in the future. Since there is a very powerful place occupying that position, God must intervene to remove that so that God's program can go forward and the temple can be put up in its place for Israel to be able to fulfill Daniel 9.27. We have to understand that every single word of prophecy has got to come to pass if the scriptures are to be true and reliable. And we do believe the scriptures are true and reliable, so therefore we believe that by God's intervention. 
And of course, we can't say how. All we can do is say it will. And God has his way of doing it. But not only do you see here in verse number one that he was to go and measure the temple of God, but he was to also go and measure the altar. Did you notice that? Now, an altar, I've mentioned this to the Bible study group before, but an altar, exact replica of the altar of sacrifice used in the temple in Jerusalem back in the days of our Lord Jesus, used by the people prior to that in the various temples that existed, that same altar concept has been built and is being housed just outside of Jericho. I don't know if anybody knows the exact location, but it is somewhere near Jericho. What they will do is the very day that that temple is put up, you're going to take their machinery, helicopters, a machine, whatever, hook onto that altar, and that altar that they have already finished, it's built, it's ready to go, will be transported over into the place where the altar sits in the temple ground. So what we see here in John, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, John is to measure both the temple and the altar. So this altar, and this is just really, it just gives you goosebumps to think that the altar, exact replica, dimensions, and everything else that was true of the former temples has been built in expectation that they will have another temple. God has communicated this to him. Remember that the Jewish people don't accept the book of the Revelation. They only accept what they have read from the Old Testament. That's all they go by. But those who do understand the New Testament are saying this is so significant because they're following through on what was there in the old time temple and they're rebuilding it to be obviously similar, if not identical, maybe to Herod's temple in the days of our Lord Jesus. He also was told that he was supposed to measure or, I guess, maybe just give a recognition or account of those that worship therein. So there's going to be a temple, there's going to be the altar of sacrifice, and the people of God will be worshiping at this temple at that time. I want you to also notice that in addition to the temple being built, altar being put in place, and worship taking place, that we're told in this passage of Scripture that Jerusalem will be controlled by non-Jewish nations for three and one-half years. So we read in verse number two, But the court which is without the temple, leave it out and measure it not, he said, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. How long is forty and two months? Three and a half years. Okay, just remember, you have such uh, such words in the scripture as 1260 days, it's three and a half years. You have the 42 months as three and a half years. So these three and a half years are significant. The reason being that they're significant is it divides the tribulation period in half. So what is happening is that the, uh, the, uh, the outside, the courts, the outside of the temple area uh, will be given to the Gentiles and they're going to rule it for 42 months. Well, it's interesting how many Palestinians and how many 
uh, Arabs are uniquely interested in controlling the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was occupied by Israel in 1967. For that reason, there's been this ongoing battle about the occupancy of Jerusalem and uh, the Jordanians as well as the Palestinians have argued that Israel has stolen this property away from them. But what they do not recognize is that that city was a city that David ruled in after Bethlehem. The uh, capital was moved to become Jerusalem. Jerusalem became the city where God was delighted to have his temple and to have the worship. And so the city of Jerusalem was recognized to be the capital of Israel since about 3,000 years ago. So it's been that. Just because they lost control of it in 70 AD does not mean that somehow the city of Jerusalem was lost totally to the Gentiles. But for a very long period of time, the Gentiles more or less had control of it. In 1967, uh, about 20 years after Israel became a nation, they finally said, we need to have our capital back. We need to have Jerusalem back where we can do the work that God is expecting of us to do, where King David can rule and where uh, they can have this perpetual kingdom be uh, reinstated and at work again. So they captured it, and so now there's been a battle, and so there's still a division as to where the territory line will be. There's still argumentation over which part is Arab and Palestinian, which part is Jewish and belongs to Israel. Well, I've got this information for all of us. All of Jerusalem belongs to Israel, every bit of it. But politically speaking, that's just no way that it's going to be settled that way right now, not without starting another major war over in that part of the world. And so so the United States just moved their embassy this last week from Tel Aviv over to Jerusalem. Let me, uh, let me just give you a little bit of, uh, of background on that one because... Going back as far as President Bill Clinton, uh, he promised the people of Israel that they would move the embassy from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. Well, it didn't happen under his, uh, under his presidency. So Barack Obama came campaigning, and on his campaigns he said, that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and our embassy needs to be moved from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem. And uh, by the way, I should back up. George Bush followed President Clinton. He said exactly the same thing. Then Barack Obama came and he said exactly the same thing. When Donald Trump was campaigning, he said, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and we will move the embassy from Tel Aviv over to Jerusalem. Uh, he just so happened to do it. And so now there is this huge kerfuffle all over the world about the American embassy being moved over to Jerusalem. Now about six or seven other countries are following suit, and eventually they all will, and eventually they will recognize internationally that Jerusalem does belong to Israel. So history is on their side. But more than history on their side, God is on their side. And because he is, this is going to happen. However even though there will be recognition that the city of Jerusalem will be in the hands of Israel, the Gentile forces are not going to give up. They're going to continue to battle. They're going to continue to fight. 
and they will ultimately be successful in occupying the city. The day is coming when Israel will lose some significant battles. And these battles will be, of course, in the time of the tribulation, and we're told that for three and a half years. It's impossible to determine where these three and a half years begin and where they end, but it is that period of time that occupies half of the time of the tribulation period where they will occupy the city of Jerusalem. Israel is facing some real uphill battles all the way through until the earthly kingdom. Uh, Israel is going to be the centerpiece of the battles, the wars, the horrendous situations that take place. When we come to the uh, 16th chapter of the book of the Revelation, we will notice the armies of the world that are going to come and gather in, in Israel. Uh, you think in terms of the numbers of the people that will be there, 200 million people will travel from the east over the Euphrates River and into the land of Israel, into the Valley of Megiddo, and they will battle there. But remember this, they're battling there, so they must battle someone maybe equal to their number. So somebody from the west has got to come in, and so you're going to have horrendous numbers of people that are going to just give a bloodbath to the Valley of Megiddo, in the time to come. There will also be a personage, and we're going to look at that in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we're going to be talking about someone that comes, and he comes to give sense to the whole thing. And people will say, yes, he does make sense, and we're going to agree with him, and he's going to rule. He's going to be in charge of the, uh, of the temporal government that is going to take place in the time of the Great Tribulation period. Now, would-be prophecy teachers lately have come on board and they have said that the Antichrist that is coming is going to be a Muslim. Any of you hear that? I mean, you heard it now, but anybody hear that before? Okay. Antichrist is going to be a Muslim. Uh, this question came up, by the way, on Wednesday night, and uh, I just said to the folks that were there without going into great detail because it was such a big subject to cover, and I just said that there isn't they're in any way under the sun that the Antichrist will be a Muslim. That is a virtual impossibility. It cannot be. And they said, why do you say that? I said, because of a whole lot of things. But if you're going to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel, it has to be out of Rome and not from the Muslim world. And uh, there are many other reasons. When we come to chapter 13, I'm going to give you a whole list of things as to why the coming Antichrist cannot be a Muslim. It, it has to be a fulfillment of Scripture, not that which seems reasonable nowadays, because the Muslim hordes are great. But remember this, when the battle against Israel comes down on the mountains of Israel and God intervenes and destroys them, who is it that's battling there at the beginning of tribulation? Iran, Syria, Ethiopia, Russia, everything that's related to the Muslim world is coming to battle against Israel and God will destroy it. So they're not going to be the center piece. They're not going to be the majority people in that time. I've got to give you a lot of reasons for that, so I don't, dare not go to that sermon tonight. But let's just be sure that the scripture has to be fulfilled as it was given. It cannot be altered along the way and say, well, here's how it's got to be because of what we see. That's not how prophecy works. Prophecy works according to the unfolding of step by step, here's what the Bible says. 
All right, so coming back now to Revelation chapter 11, I want us to notice next the two witnesses. So these two witnesses show up on the scene somewhere in the tribulation time. What we notice about them is that what's going to be is that they're going to have special powers for three and one half years and will dress in austere manner. If you recall two men that came in here several months ago now and uh, tried to make us believe that we were ungodly people because of the way the women were dressing, they were just causing a little bit of disturbance here, but apparently they have done that in all kinds of churches all over the place. So there's quite a group of them moving around and doing it exactly the same day. But I looked at them and I said, they don't have potato sacks on. So if they don't have potato sacks on, they're not a real threat. So it can't be the two witnesses of Revelation. By the way, the two witnesses of Revelation are going to come and they're going to really create a lot of disturbance for people. They're going to be a very powerful force to reckon with and they will hold people to the line of what is right and accuse them when they're wrong and let them know that they're wrong. But they're going to be dressed, in, and I don't take this to be some symbolic or some other thing. I think they're going to be dressed in ragtags. I think they're going to be just as humble looking as you're going to get a person looking. And people are going to look at them with ridicule and disdain and say, hey, they don't have suits on or they don't have fancy clothes on or maybe they don't have blue jeans with holes in them. I'm not sure. But, but in any case, they will be a very rugged looking, austere manner. You look at verse number three. We uh, notice this, and I'm just going to read verse 3 here. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. We notice in the next place that they are olive trees and candlesticks. We see that in verse number 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. These people were prophesied back in Zechariah. Referred to, referred to in the book of Psalms, but uh, you'll notice that they are a fulfillment of a prophetic utterance that took place many years ago. They can breathe deadly fire from their mouths. For we read that if any man will hurt them, in verse 5, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now remember that these are his two witnesses. These are not normal men. I don't know what kind of men they are, but they're unusual. I don't think it'll be a pick of just anybody in general society because God is going to give them peculiar and special abilities. Now, I just noticed on uh, the trending on my news feature on my phone this afternoon that somebody wrote an article about Jordan Peterson again, and of course, he is a victim of attack by liberals and by a lot of people out there. And, and what they were mocking was that this man believes in dragons and myths and all kinds of spooky things. Well, I'm not sure what Jordan Peterson believes about those things. I don't agree with him on everything to be sure, but I don't think he's spooky that way. But if somebody in the world were to hear me say tonight that two men are going to come dressed in potato bags and they're going to breathe fire out of their mouths, people are going to say, what a dumb preacher. Well, I at first admit, yeah, he's a dumb preacher, no doubt about that. But he's a preacher who believes what the Bible says. Okay, So if somebody says, well, I can't believe what that says, I've got to invent some sort of, wait a minute, 
Who's going to be better than the Bible to interpret what the Bible says? Who's going to be smarter than what the Bible says? And so I want you to know that these two men will have peculiar gifts. Did some of the prophets, did some of the prophets have the ability to just speak and have people killed by the fact that they spoke in the Old Testament times? As many as 50 people at once? Did the apostles have the power when two people lied to them? Did Peter have the power to extinguish them and that they died on the spot just by the word of Peter? Did he have that power? He did. So if these two men come and anybody seeks to oppose them and they breathe fire out of their mouths, it's no greater miracle than what these other apostles and prophets did. It, it fits perfectly what God has done, but it's going to be unusual. It's not going to be the irregular person. It's going to be witnesses that are specially appointed by God who are capable of doing so. You'll notice that they also have the power to control weather. If you look at verse 6, these have power to shut the heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So they have a miracle working power. They would make people like Benny Hinn shudder in his boots. They, uh, the power that these men will actually have, not make-believe, not sensational power, but power to move the general nature of the world. Who else could do that? Well, our Lord Jesus could do it. He could cause a tempest to come up. He could cause a tempest to be still with one spoken word. This is the power of God. And the power of God will be seen as these two witnesses come on board and they operate in these miraculous ways. Then I want you to notice the fate as these two witnesses. Now, we're actually not told in Scripture what they accomplish. I would be curious to know that. And I would like to know that, but I cannot conjecture. I cannot say what they accomplish. It's one of those things that we don't know. One of those things that John did not record and the Holy Spirit did not see fit for us to know what they would accomplish. But obviously, they play some significant part in the time of the tribulation, probably to again let the world know that there is a power from God that no man can match and no man can be equal to. But these two men are overcome. There's a significant difference between these and the 144,000. The 144,000 cannot be overcome. They are sealed by God and they will make it through the whole time and they will be in the heavenly places rejoicing at the fulfillment of their gospel ministry. But not so with these. God has a different purpose. And part of his purpose was to show what the fate of these two witnesses would be. And what is the fate of them? Uh, and verse 7 says, and when they shall have finished their testimony. So when game is over. I like the idea in the scripture that every man serves and every man lives till his time's up. And what we notice here is that these two men's time is up. And we see the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So you notice that the beast, this is obviously the power of Satan. Somehow, whether Satan himself, but it is satanic because he's coming out of that bottomless pit. Somehow he's released or finds his way out, and he begins to battle against these. These two are witnessing for God. Satan undertakes to make the witness of God stop. Let's just look at that under 
any time and circumstances. Whenever there's a witness for God, Satan will seek to stop the witness of God. He'll try to interfere. And in this case, he will come and he will overcome them and he will kill them. So we notice, first of all, that they're killed by the Antichrist. Their bodies shall be in the streets of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is at this time controlled by the secularists, by the Gentile nations. They overpower Israel, and so they're in charge. And what God is doing is he's putting a witness in the midst of Jerusalem that should shake them to the very roots of their existence. For we read that for three and a half years, days, they shall be in that great city. Do you notice what that city is called? We'll go back to verse number eight. And their bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord also was crucified. Now, we know our Lord was crucified just outside of Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, just um, the outside of the camp, according to Hebrews, uh, just outside of Jerusalem. But this city is at that time called Sodom and Egypt. It could, in a sense, be called that today as well, because it's not a believing city. They have a promise of God, and there's perpetuity on their behalf, and God will benefit Jerusalem. But I want us to realize that there isn't anything really spiritual. So when people go over to Jerusalem and awe and ooh and pass and faint and have all kinds of uh, interesting experiences that are inexplainable, the fact is that Jerusalem itself right now is an unbelieving city, and they would be quick to crucify Jesus today as they were 2,000 years ago. So this city is called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, it is a place that is anti-Christ. It is a place that is anti-God. But God has his unique plan for the city to make it what he intends it to be. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Why? Why would people want to keep two molested, destroyed human bodies that had been so uniquely used by God? Why would they want to observe them for three and a half days? Well, I'll tell you what. They're going to make sure they're dead. Because if you don't rise up in three days, you're probably really dead. And so no idea of swooning, no idea of maybe just playing it or acting dead and so on. And they will be able to say in about three days, we have come to the conclusion. I can see CNN, not my friends, MSNBC, not my friends. I can see the liberal media of all sorts. Excited. Excited. These men, horrible men, because they preach the truth about God and Jesus, these horrible men are dead, dead, dead. And the cameras will not shut down 24 hours a day. And anybody watching any of these news medias anywhere, they will see the dead bodies and people are actually going to say, yeah, they're dead. We believe it. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. They're dead. And then what happens? When they're finally completely convinced they're dead, they rise up. And they live. 
<laughs> boy, I'll tell you, I like this. This is, this is really, really exciting stuff. You see, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. It's not me making it up. I'm just dramatizing it a little bit. And they will make merry, and they shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. How did they torment them? You're not supposed to sin, that's what they said. And that's a torment? It is. In a secular world, that is a torment. Because people get really, really offended when you preach against sinful things. And it really stabs them to their heart. And that's what had happened to these. But verse 11 says that after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. I would be entertained. I would be entertained to see the news commentators. We have not made a mistake like this ever before. Ladies and gentlemen, we were absolutely, totally convinced that these men were dead, but obviously they were not. Hmm. Great fear fell upon them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. Jake's testimony tonight, what a great thing about having the hope to come up. Well, these two men have a unique experience and that God used them in a very unique way. And then in the end, he takes them up into glory in the tribulation period. So when people say there's a, there's a rapture somewhere in the tribulation, there is these two alone. And they're taken up. They ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Who's watching? See that? They're enemies beheld them as these two men are taken up. <laughs> God somehow has this phenomenal sense of humor against his enemies and he make and he will laugh at them. Psalm says he will laugh at them. But these enemies of God and these enemies of these witnesses, they'll stand there and they will look as these two witnesses are taken up into the presence of the Lord. Well, what a great, what a great event that is going to be. So as they're raptured, the voice calls them up to heaven. And this event then, as the rapture takes place for these two men, this event is followed by a great earthquake that destroys 10% of Jerusalem, at least 7,000 men that are destroyed by the earthquake. So again, God intervenes and God shakes the very roots and the very foundations of an unbelieving world. And so we notice that John writes these wonderful words. He says, that's the end of the second woe. But he says the third one comes quickly. So the angel that had said, there are three woes to come. And woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the three woes. That is the seventh trumpet, three woes within the seventh trumpet. And now the third one is coming very, very rapidly. Well, we have a little bit of a break and inter interception here when we come to Revelation chapter 12. And I want to give you some very interesting information on the 12th chapter of the book of the Revelation. 
And it is then that we move on to show who the Antichrist is. Thank you for joining us today at the Revelation Podcast. We invite you to join us again next week for a new episode. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you're listening today, please subscribe and share with your friends. If you want to hear more messages from Dr. Neil Sawatsky or learn how you can visit a service, please check out openbible.ca.